Hello and welcome back to the Cardboard Box Item Podcast. Today we have a very special interview to bring you with a very special guest, Aoife O'Friel, who is a narrative designer at Massive Entertainment, a Ubisoft studio. Aoife has a wealth of experience within the games industry, working on a variety of titles such as AAA games like Assassin's Creed Odyssey, to smaller indie games such as Storm Vior and Falling Water. So I started off by asking Aoife how our 2020 has been. Um, I mean, I think it's been the same as it has for everybody, right? It's been pretty tough with COVID and everything, not being able to go out, see your friends, travel, go home, anything like that. But um, generally, like work-wise, it's been pretty good. Um, I've gotten into a nice rhythm working from home and uh, I get to spend more time with Mr. Floof, my little rabbit. So. <laughs> That's the cutest <laughs> name <laughs> I've ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Yes. Floof. Yeah, so, you know, it's as good as it can be. Okay, so just to get into it, Aoife, um, how did you get started in the industry? Sure, yeah. Um, so, like I said before, it's it's not a straightforward answer, and I don't think anybody really has a straightforward answer for how they got into mm. the industry. Um, but yeah, I, I wanted to write creatively, and I was writing my own stuff online, and I met this woman online who said she really wanted to be a game writer. And that was the first time I was like, oh my God, that's a thing. You know, <laughs> like you, you can, you can just be, you can be the writer for a video game. Like that's, that's fantastic because, um, I mean, I loved games and I wanted to work creatively, but I also really enjoy working in a team other than, you know, being mm. by myself. So I decided I better learn more about this industry and see what's involved. Um, I was really lucky to get a job in, uh, QA in uh, a a multimedia production company in London. And I learned a lot there, but this is where it starts to get complicated. (laughs) (laughs) So um, at the time anyway, in in London and in England, there were really like no entry level narrative jobs going. And I knew I would have to start entry level because I had no fiction credits. Like I had, I had written some short stories as a ghostwriter, but you know, I had no like actual fiction writing credits to Mm. my name. And so um, the girl I met online, she lived in Quebec City and she said, you know, if you're really serious about this, you need to move. You know, you need to go to where the big studios are because you have more of a chance. And so I was like, okay, should I do this? I mean, should I just like go to Canada? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it was a big risk and that's why I would never recommend anybody doing that. Um, I saved for like a year. I got a two year visa to Canada And I moved to Quebec and the first year honestly was a disaster. I mean, I, there were no jobs going. I was working on some indie projects and I I got some great experience that way, but, um, I was working for like no money. I had to pick up other odd jobs and stuff like that to just make rent. Um, but luckily my break came in, um, 2018, January, 2018, um, Ubisoft Montreal called me. Um, I had applied for a writing job there and they said the writers loved my samples and they wanted me to start. Um, They interviewed me right there over the phone and and wanted me to start. But I was living in Quebec City, which is about three hours away from Montreal. Mm. And they were only offering a three month contract and I couldn't afford to break my lease. (laughs) So I was like, oh my God, I have my dream job (laughs) and it's just three hours away, but I can't get to it. But um, very nicely, UB Montreal put in a call to Ubisoft Quebec to see if I could be placed there instead. And they said yes. And I started a three month contract on Assassin's Creed Odyssey with them. Mm. 
And that was it. That's how I got my start. But yeah, it was like almost a disaster. I was like, I, I, I mean, I blew through my savings. I was like, I'm going to have to go home and live with my mom. And I have nothing. Um, but yeah, so I was, I was very lucky, to be honest. I, I think you're, you hit on something very true, though, for a lot of creative and media-based uh, jobs in those industries is you sort of have to move to where the action is. Um, yeah. maybe, maybe less so now after coronavirus has shown us that we can all potentially work from home to a certain extent but you do sort of have to like I don't know about what's happening in Ireland or the UK in terms of games development but like Canada and Sweden and places like that do seem to be like hubs of uh, game development in a way. Yeah, I, I I think it's a real barrier to entry, you know, which is a real shame because if you can't afford to move or if mm. you have dependents or if you have like a mortgage, you know, you can't just pick up and be, I'm going to go find a job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, it is it is really hard. And I think especially in narrative, because narrative jobs are quite rare. And when they do come up, the competition is fierce. So mm. even if you are like there are Ubisoft studios in England, you know, there's also like other AAA studios like Rocksteady, but you know, the narrative jobs are like a needle in a haystack. And then when they do come up, you know, these are big, you know, these are, sorry, these are small studios. So they don't necessarily have, you know, the bandwidth to hire people at entry level. They need people who can come in um, and already know what they're doing. (laughs) So like sometimes there are entry level jobs, but at least when I was looking, I couldn't find any. And I thought, the best thing I can do is go to where the biggest studios are. And I mean, I knew somebody in Quebec, which was incredibly lucky for me. So yeah, I, I, I know what you mean though. It's, it's hard. Like, I think, I think it's really hard for anybody who wants to work in the industry and they don't live near these studios, then, you know, what can you do? Yeah. Especially if you're from like the South of Ireland, <laughs> like a lot of us, yeah. um, it's sort of, there's not too much happening there. I do like, in fairness, I do think the industry is growing in a lot of places in Ireland and places like that. But yeah, ex- especially if you want to work on bigger projects um, with larger scopes and bigger teams, it does seem like you have to to, to go somewhere. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, that's something I should say as well, because like, I'm not disparaging indie. I, I got some mm. great experience in indie. I personally really wanted to break into AAA because I I love having that big scope, you know, and, mm. and I love being part of a big team in a big studio. It's just, it, it excites me personally. Um, but I know there's a lot of great indie work happening in Ireland. And then there's Larian as well in Dublin. And um, I'm not sure if there is other AAA in mm. Ireland, but yeah, or other big studios. But um, I would love to see the industry grow in Ireland. I think Ireland has so much potential for that. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned that uh, you worked on some indie titles when you moved first. Is there any that we might have heard of? Um, I don't think any of them came out. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> great experience, is, at least. Then, yeah, it? <laughs> it, was, it was great experience. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of got these jobs, again, in lots of different ways. Like I, I found some on Upwork and um, you know, that freelance site. Mm. And I think I found some on LinkedIn. Some of them were bigger teams. I mean, when I say bigger teams, I mean like maybe five people. Some of them were one person who was like, I need someone to help me with my story for my game. Mm. Um, mm. And yeah, I don't think any of them came out except for one that I had a chance to be um, a story consultant on after I had worked on Odyssey, um, Storm VR, which was um, made in part by 
the studio I used to work QA for. I think that's how they found me. Oh. <laughs> um, and that is going to be like an episodic, um, an episodic game. And the, the episodes that I helped out on have not been released yet, but at least it's a game that has been released. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I can, I can at least talk about that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, fair play to you, first of all, for like uh, getting a job, especially like being able to work on Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I haven't played that one personally, but one of my friends uh, was saying that the jump in quality in the writing for that was huge. Like, uh, like it was like Assassin's Creed games usually have like really good branching stories, but they said Odyssey stood out for being particularly good. So, hey, well done there. <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think they really like they really. Um, kind of solidified their goals with Odyssey and making it an RPG, you know, and, and mm. taking the series to that kind of new direction. So, yeah, it made a big difference for sure. The characters are particularly good in that one, I think, personally, but um, from, from what I've seen. Uh, That's true. I didn't get to write any of those, but yeah, I totally agree with you. They were awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you mind if I ask, so uh, what exactly, you're, you're a narrative designer at uh, Ubisoft. What exactly does a narrative designer do? Um. Yeah, so it's it's a really interesting job title because um, that role differs a lot across different studios. Um, it's it's not really like this is you know an art designer is X. It kind of depends on on mm -hmm. the studio's needs, but um, it's really about designing how players experience the narrative of the game. Mm -hmm. So while that can be like that can be dialogue and cutscenes, but that's kind of more of the game writer's job. But narrative uh, okay. and narrative designers do sometimes work as game writers as well, which is what I do. But um, the design part of narrative design usually involves more mission design or quest design. So you're using visual scripting tools and you're working in the game editor to like create these missions and to implement whatever you need for that mission narratively. So like your NPCs, your props, your objective markers, like whatever you need. Um, all while like you're designing the flow of the mission and you're designing the pacing for the player. So it's, it's, um, that's what makes it different in my opinion from a game writer. Cause you're not just focused on text. You're focused on the player experience. That's really cool. Can you give us an example of like when you worked outside the box to like, uh, convey the narrative to a player in like a recent game you worked on? Yeah. I mean, um, with, with narrative design, because you can imagine, like, from what I've said, it interacts with pretty much every discipline in games. So, like, you'll need to go to art for your character design and your props. You'll need to go to level designers for your locations. Mm -hmm. You go to audio for your recording, uh, UI for how certain things should be communicated and, and presented, and, and then, like, the animation team for your cutscenes. And, you know, you need a programmer when you break the build. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's all about communication. And, like, most of my days are a mix of meetings with all these different stakeholders while you're just working on your own content. So you get to, you know, you get really um, great chances to, to innovate because, you know, of course, artists can have great ideas for a story as well. And like level designers can have a great thing that they want to do mm -hmm. in a level. And, and you can see how you can work that in narratively. Um, and yeah, it's really about this team approach and working together to innovate and, and to iterate and to find something that feels the best, um, which is part of the fun for me because I love, I love working with different teams. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that sounds great. So like you don't have any like typical day where you're just at your computer typing away. Pretty much every day is different for you then. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, it depends on what I'm working on. Like some days might be spent working on the same 
part of the game. Um, but yeah, you are usually speaking to different people every day about like, I need this or, you know, can I help you with this? Or, oh my God, I broke this. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think we all in our separate industries have that every day anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As a teacher, that's pretty bad for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask one thing, because like, it's such a fascinating role that you do and something that's so unique to the games as an art form, really. Mm. Um but one thing I, I've read about previously is um, on Titanfall 2 and on some Double Fine games, they almost have like a a game jam type thing where they just make a new level, completely improvise, throw any ideas at the wall, and then some of those get integrated within other games. I think Psychonauts 2 has some of these levels that were just made as part of like fun game jams previously. Mm-hmm. Um do you get to approach uh, a level design that way or are there certain restrictions that you have to put on yourself within like the t- context of whatever game you're making? Um, sometimes, yeah. I mean, it depends on the game, of course. But yeah, you, you definitely do get that uh, chance to experiment, especially when you're like in the early days of production mm. and, and you're trying to see like what works, you know, what feels good. Um, and you know, we work with like level designers, of course, and, and they are ultimately responsible for what the level looks like, but ideas can come from anywhere. And, um, I find that especially working at Ubisoft massive that, you know, they're really open to, it doesn't matter what, you know, it doesn't matter who has the idea as long as it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, Mm -hmm. it's part of that communication again, where you do get to like, try different things out and you do get to work with other teams and you get to suggest things to like, I can suggest something to a level designer and they're like, Oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to try to build that. Or they can suggest something to me for, you know, the, 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 a certain narrative experience that the player has at a part of the level. I'm like, that sounds awesome. I'm going to see if that works. Um, so yeah, definitely you, you do get to experiment a lot and uh, just see what feels good. Yeah. That's what I, it's so cool that it's like, everyone is just we're geared towards the end goal like the player having an interesting fun experience it doesn't matter where the idea comes from or it does seem like uh, a very collaborative job really yes definitely definitely yeah um so Aoife like coming to uh, Ubisoft for Assassin's Creed like that was like an amazing break for you like you you really you really got lucky with that. What was it like coming from, you know, a few small indie titles straight away into working on an Assassin's Creed game? Like, it must have felt, like, very intimidating, perhaps, or did you fit right in and get right into, right down to work? It was, um, it was definitely intimidating because um, I I was putting a lot of pressure on this too, right? Because I was like, oh my God, Mm. (laughs) I have my dream job, you know, and I'm walking into the studio and they give me my pass. I'm like, am I allowed to be here? I mean, (laughs) like (laughs) like I can go through these doors. Okay, cool. Um, But yeah, it was was fascinating because, um, you know, I I knew that I was going to be part of this this legacy, right? Mm. And and to get to write for this hugely popular franchise and, and know that millions of people would see my writing and play my quests, I mean... Yeah, I, I'm still gobsmacked, actually, that that happened. Um, and the people there, they were so welcoming. They were so nice. You know, they have like onboarding to, you know, get you up to speed on everything. And um, so I, I was intimidated because um, I was so excited. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, it, it kind of, 
it was easy to to like get in sync with everybody and hit the ground running and you know they were very clear about what they needed and um what my role was and yeah I was so upset when my contract ended but you know I I knew it was only three months but like Mm. I I was really grieving the loss of that job because it Mm. it had ticked all the boxes for me and it made me more sure than ever that this is what I want to do um but yeah, I, I was also lucky because six weeks later I was working at Ubisoft Montreal. But the, those six weeks in between were like the longest six weeks of my life because yeah. I, didn't, yeah. I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so I had it and now it's over and I guess that's it. <laughs> but that, <laughs> but that, yeah. yeah, that's it. It's like once you get your foot on the ladder in, in an industry like that, then you're kind of away with it then. I guess you're just kind of, you're in a bit of limbo waiting for the next thing to come along. But I mean, yeah, it was definitely going to happen at some stage. Yeah, that's what I was telling myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, 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 totally. I mean, like, if you have a game like that on your CV, like, you're it not helping like, yeah. That's not going to be the only yeah. thing you ever do. Then, it's like, yeah, I worked in Assassin's Creed Odyssey for three months and then, like, became a carpenter or something. Yeah. Like, you know. not to disparage carpenters, we do yeah. need them in fairness. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesus was a game developer. Yes, it's true. Nothing wrong with being a carpenter. <laughs> uh, so th- that was nice, though, that they they eased you into their working environment and working environment and stuff but um was it a challenge uh, working on assassin's creed to fit within the structure of the preceding games um i think like ubisoft's really aware of of the legacy that games like assassin's creed have you know and and mm. their lore mm. and um franchises like that that are long running they really have you know this core dna i'd say so y- you have all this great stuff to work from but you're still getting to build on that and create something new and something something fresh and unique, like with the you know the new direction of RPG for Assassin's Creed. Yeah. So I think you you really end up getting the same challenges in a way that you would with a new IP because you're still trying to make sure that new ideas work. Mm. Um, but you have kind of you know you have the advantage with a franchise um, that you have a base to build from, but it can still it can evolve and and it can iterate. And, you know, it's it's exciting to be a part of that as well. Yeah, so, like, obviously, um, I, I personally, I haven't played Odyssey, but I know it's been getting, like, amazing reviews ever since it launched. And But it, it, ha- it does expand a bit on the previous games. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm guessing because there are so many games in the franchise, they had, like you know, workplace workflows in place for, like, specific parts and stuff. So was there a lot of... Uh, new things added, I guess, from you, or did you just kind of build off existing like pillars? Um, well, for my role in particular, it was about um, populating the world of ancient Greece and, and, and making it, you know, come to life. And the historical setting was incredibly important for Odyssey. And um, you know, Ubisoft really made sure that ancient Greece was well represented. So, you know, you have, of course, the historical figures that you meet in the main game, but you also have the daily lives of people. Like, they needed to feel, um, you know, that they were accurate to to the setting. Yeah. And, and we had, like, a wealth of historical research to work with. Like, there was so much historical research. Mm. And um, that that ended up, like, being really fun because I, I got to write some fun quests based on stuff that I, I found out in, in the research. Um, one of them was this, this woman had her earrings stolen, but there was an inscription on them because she was a spy. And that was because I found out in ancient Greece, they would inscribe secret messages on jewelry. And that was a really thing they did during the war. 
that's that's amazing. a cool little detail. Yeah, so I, I read that and I was like, that's awesome. I'm going to make that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it was uh, it was really fun to like see how how you can merge kind of this real information uh, and in an entertaining way. I think that's an underrated part of the Assassin's Creed games in general is that they can mm. be almost like a educational tool or like provide like a historical um, representation of something. Like obviously there's plenty of elements in the games that aren't historically accurate but um, mm-hmm. like uh, I think maybe I'm mixing this up with something else but was um, one of the Assassin's Creed games almost adapted to be like a virtual tour of No you're right yeah oh, they have the Discovery Flag, Tour Discovery tour. Oh, sorry. I thought you were talking about discovery tour mode. No? Um, yeah, yeah. There's sort of like, you can just visit these like historical areas and it's yes, almost like yeah. Yeah, be, being transported back there, I guess. Yeah, I, I think mm. they I think they first, now I could be wrong, but I think they first did that for Origins yes, um, yes, to explore Egypt. Yeah. And then they did it as well for Odyssey, for ancient Greece. And um, it's really, um, really great. It's really great way for like, even for teachers to kind of show you know, um, a virtual representation of, of these ancient worlds, but it's, it's great for anyone who wants to just kind of jump in and and they don't necessarily want to deal with any combat or anything like Mm. that. They just want to, they just want to run around, you know, uh, the pyramids. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, it would be awkward if your lecturer had to like kill five guys just to show (laughs) you the pyramid. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I, I wasn't involved in any of the discovery tour stuff, but I've seen it. And yeah, I think it's really a fantastic idea. Mm. I love it. So you're now, um, working with massive and who are massive and in scope and size (laughs) and and name as well. Um, um, have you found that like uh, working in different AAA studios, for want of a better term, um, like do they all have their own sort of workflow, their own vibe, or are there like a lot of skills that you can transfer over, and it's it's easy to transition between one and the other? If you get me, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Um, I think because the three studios I've worked at were all Ubisoft studios, um, mm. I, I can't speak for for AAA in general, but. Um, there are different vibes to them. Like I think, I think Quebec had about 400 people when I was there and then Montreal has nearly 4,000. Wow. So it was a big jump, but again, you are kind of working just very closely with your own team Mm. and, and your own little corner of, of the dev floor. So I, I didn't even get to, I didn't even really get that feeling of I'm in a building with like 3,000 or 4,000 people. I was just working with my own team, but, um, all of the all of the internal practices are still the same because it's still Ubisoft. So you have the same internal tools, the same the same structure, and, and the same core values. But um, I think Massive is really interesting because it it retains a lot of its own identity still as Massive Entertainment. Mm. So like they've they've merged with Ubisoft values and policies, um, but they still have their own Massive values, and they're still really proud of the history of the studio and where it's come from and where it's going. So yeah, you get a sense that massive of this history and this legacy, even though they're now still part of the Ubisoft family and they follow all the same kind of workflows and things like that. Hmm. It is. Yeah. I guess that like that unity of having a load of, uh, studios under the Ubisoft umbrella means that there are things that are common among them. So if someone, is moving to another country or wants to transition to a different role in another studio, that means it's like more open for them to do that in a way. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's how I ended up making the leap from Montreal to Massive mm. because, um, like, yeah, like I said, I, I went over on my own two-year visa, which meant that Ubisoft couldn't renew it for me. They had to apply for a new one. Mm. And um, yeah, God, that was some hassle. <laughs> <laughs> the, like, the international mobility team at Montreal were fantastic and they did everything they could, but there's no speeding up the immigration process, you know? No, no. Um, and so they said to me, look, you can, you'll have to, you have to leave Canada when, when your visa's up. Um, and then, you know, in maybe nine months to a year, you could come back. I was like, okay, or <laughs> I was like, or or you can apply to Ubisoft Studios in Europe, and um, you know, I, I was like, if I if I leave, if I have to move out of Canada and then do nothing for a year and move back, you know, I, I would rather work at Ubisoft in Europe. Yeah, and um, so I interviewed with with Ubisoft Massive, and luckily they made me an offer, so I was able to go straight from Montreal to Massive. But um, like you said, because it's all Ubisoft, you know, so many of the the workflows and the practices are the same and they have a strong internal relationship between all the studios. So it was probably an easier transition than it would have been to go to another studio entirely. Yeah, fantastic. That's that's mm. so nice though. They obviously like really valued you um, to like j- mm. to just offer you that position in a different studio, you know? They didn't want to leave you hanging out to dry basically. Yeah, I mean, it, of course, Massive still had the say over whether they wanted yeah. me or not. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was just like, you could take this one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I did feel really lucky to have that opportunity, you know, because um, it was HR at, at Montreal that, that talked to HR in, in Massive. It's like, do you want to interview this one? So, um, <laughs> you know, so I, I had like, um, I had the advantage of already being inside and already being an internal candidate rather than, you know, um, being somebody completely new, applying to a completely new AAA studio. Cool. I just want to ask, so you mentioned that um, you you started off and you wanted to write in fiction, um, which is sort of a solitary activity, like you generally lock yourself in a room with a typewriter. Um, did, you, did you find it's difficult to position yourself more as a collaborative team-based uh, writer or are there elements that you love from one and hate from the other? Yeah, I think that was, you know, that was my initial hope. Like as a student, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be so cool to write novels and mm. stuff? But um, it was like such a lofty career goal. I, I didn't think it was possible um, for me to be able to do something like that and, and make enough money to survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but also then as I, as I did start writing by myself, um, I learned more about how I like to work because um, I thought that I would prefer to do it by myself. When, when I was a freelance writer, I worked alone um, and I didn't really like it that much. I, I, I preferred when I had an opportunity to work with the team and to bounce ideas around with different people. Um, so that's what made game writing so appealing for me. Aside from, you know, games as a medium being really interesting, mm. it was also the chance to work with other people, you know, hear other people's ideas and like to build off each other's ideas rather than just being on your own. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I, I learned more about my own working style as I went along. Um, I'd just like to ask you a question about your own personal gaming preferences, if that's okay. Sure. So um, picture, if you will, uh, you've had a long day, you're coming back home, opening a bottle of wine and you throw on uh, your PC or PlayStation or whatever. Uh, Being like someone who's very interested in the narrative side of things, would you be 
lean would you lean more towards like more narrative driven games or would you be a big fan of open world games like the ones you've worked on before um i'd say both which is probably a really boring answer but um yeah next question because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean i i love narrative games of course and and i'm really interested in in the way different games um tell stories um, but I think you can get those experiences in big open world games too. Mm. Like The Witcher 3 springs to mind, you know. Um, mm. I love that game personally. And you do have a strong core narrative and you do have a, uh, have a defined personality in the protagonist of Geralt. Um, mm. But it's still an open world and there's tons to do and, and, you know, plenty of side quests and plenty of things to discover. So you can kind of... You, you can fine-tune the experience, I guess, to what you feel like doing. Do you want to go off and do this big main mission or do you want to just explore this part of the map for a while and, and chill out? <laughs> so I, yeah. I, I think both are possible, even in the one game. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can, I, I'd imagine it must be fairly tough. For me personally, I, I love narrative-driven games and I tend to shy away a little bit from open-world games, but I do think you're right. It is possible. Um, for me... Far Cry 3 is a game that jumps out to me. That was a game that did a great job of making a really good story and like an open world that like uh, didn't intrude too much on the central narrative. Mm. Is it like, is it really tricky to, because there's such a playground to play in with, with Assassin's Creed Odyssey especially, is it tricky to kind of keep players focused on the main story and not just to get lost in a massive world or... Uh, yeah, I I think um, it can be difficult, but in, mostly in terms of tone, because mm. like you, you kind of get that with a lot of open world games where the main story is, you know, you have to save the world from destruction. But at the same time, you'll have a side quest that's pretty casual and relaxed. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's at odds with the urgency of, of the main campaign. But mm. um, I, see. I think it's tough to avoid that because you want to provide players with that range. You know, you mm -hmm. want them to have different activities. You want them to be able to take a break and enjoy quests with a slower pace or a different mm -hmm. vibe. Um, so I think ensuring that still makes sense for your overall narrative and your main character, that can definitely be the tricky part. And mm -hmm. it's harder for some games than it is for others too, because it comes down to the role of the protagonist. Like I think, again, to use The Witcher 3 as an example, um, mm -hmm. but... Geralt is a witcher, so he needs to make money and he needs to take mm. contracts, you know, yeah. and that just mm. makes sense for him. Even with, even with the, you know, the urgency of him looking for Siri. and sorry if there are spoilers for anybody here, <laughs> um, but yeah. like, e even though he has that urgent need, he still needs cash, you know, and he still, he still moves through the world as a witcher doing a job. So, mm. you know, his, his side quests make sense and they don't detract from um, the main campaign. But um, just to go back to your question a bit, I don't think the role of the main campaign really is to drive players forward and not allow for distractions. Because an open world, you know, you want players to explore mm. and you want them to experience the full depth and range that the world has to offer. So if you have this huge game that has hundreds of hours of content and you're like, oh my God, do I even want to do all this? <laughs> but like, you could come back to the main mission um, and be like, what am I doing? I don't remember. So I, I think the main mm. campaign needs to work as a clear guide with clear goals. So you can pick it up again mm. in a week or a month or a year. <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's not 
to, um, it's not to detract from you getting distracted, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think it's really funny, actually, you mentioned The Witcher, that it does make sense for him to be to need to earn money. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking of like a few JRPGs I've played where near the end of the game, you're like, OK, the world is about to explode, but we'll take five minutes out here to breed rabbits in the corner <laughs> and then we'll go back to, you know, because <laughs> that's, that's yeah. a common thing in so many JRPGs. But um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, just off the back of uh, Steve's question about like open world games and stuff and obviously how immersive they are like typically in open world games very much like assassin's creed odyssey there's a lot of incidental npc dialogue um like overheard conversations and that how important are these for making a game's world feel alive yeah i'd say they're extremely important and 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 yeah i might be biased because i get to write some of them but But, um yeah like you know like you said they make the world feel alive right yeah so You, you want to get the sense that the NPCs around you are actually living their daily lives and that the world continues on without you, even after you leave that region or even after you put down the controller. Mm. Like you, you want to feel like it's a real place. Nobody wants to be reminded that they're just talking to a computer. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so um, I think overheard conversations are great for like planting quest clues, but they're also great for just giving flavor to the NPC's life and giving them some personality. I think especially when you have like barks that are directed at the player when they do something unexpected. Like, I love that. That's fantastic. Because mm. it makes me feel like, oh my God, that NPC really saw me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, actually, funny, we were just talking about this. Um, I'm playing cyberpunk at the moment and I found uh, the incidental dialogue is great in that game. But yesterday I, uh, I walked into a bar during a mission and who's at the bar talking to someone Hideo Kojima. What? Is he? Oh he's in the no really? game. <laughs> and he's having this conversation about how there's this thing called, uh, oh, I'm going to get the term wrong, dreamscapes or dream tapes or something, which is like a virtual reality thing within Cyberpunk. And he's talking about how, oh, I'm, I don't think it uh, gives an emotional connection to the audience and all this. Like he's talking like Hideo Kojima talks about games, but within the <laughs> cyberpunk universe. That's so That's uh, very cool. that, that was amazing. It, it, it weirdly took me out of the game because... It's, you yeah. recognize him, right? So yeah, you're like, hey. Exactly, but um, it was also very funny and cool. You like know. Jeff Keighley. Hideo Kojima, though. Love him. Sorry. Took me to oh, like Jeff Keighley in Death Stranding. Death Stranding. Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Steve. No, no, I was just saying uh, anything that Hideo Kojima's in, like, it doesn't matter how forced or shoehorned he is. Like, I love everything he's in. He's just so good. <laughs> um, so talking about narrative, um, just for example, the worlds in games like Deus Ex and Bioshock have huge, huge depth in terms of lore. Um, in your opinion, is it essential that a game has, quote unquote, a backstory? And mm-hmm. if, if it does have one, how do you communicate that to a player? So, yeah, I think personally, if you're building or if you're trying to build a big, intricate world, then yeah, a backstory is impossible to avoid. Mm. Um, like world building is so intertwined with narrative. So you're deciding the backstory for your world with every choice you make about that world. Mm. Like, you know, it's rules, how it operates, how the player experiences it. Those are all narrative choices whether you realize it or not. And and if you don't make those choices intentionally, then they're still there. They're still creating a narrative about your world, whether you meant to or not. So I think 
I think having a backstory to a world is something that really drives player curiosity. It's like it's a big part of player motivation to learn more about the world mm. you've chosen to spend some time in. And that doesn't all have to be, you know, exposition dump to the player, you know. So, like, you can do so much with environmental storytelling. Like, if you have a pile of bodies in a corner, no one needs to say anything. Like, you already yeah. understand. <laughs> Something bad happened here, yeah, you know. <laughs> and, um, like, it, it drives the curiosity a little more. And there are other methods for messaging that backstory. Like, you have, you know, audio collectibles or graffiti um, I love the graffiti and like games like The Last of Us that, mm. that tell so much about mm. like what happened here and what were people's experiences. Um, you've got letters, you have like the overheard conversations we were talking about. But um, I think environmental storytelling is going to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And the, the backstory is like it's indicative of a complex world even though it's not fundamental to understanding the main narrative. So you might say, oh, it doesn't really matter because it's not, I don't need this to understand the main story. Mm. But um, it does make your world richer and it prevents it from feeling shallow or, or flat because like it involves a level of interpretation for the player and it's fun for them. You know, you, you hope it's fun for them because they, they get to be an active participant in the narrative and they get to figure things out. So you can give the player a few clues like that to this backstory and you let them piece it together. And then it implies a much larger world, a much richer world. So, mm, yeah. yeah, I think it's kind of impossible to avoid for a lot of games, especially big games. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Um, it, it's so interesting what you say as well is that like it's it it's something that the player voluntarily engages with as well mm -hmm. like they can just go ahead and do the straight like main story they can skip all the cutscenes if they want to like that's the option there for them in a lot of games but you have all this lore and all this color that'll add to the world and make it mm, see more real and lived in i guess absolutely um, yeah it's it's also interesting when you're talking i was thinking this is pretty much what all the Souls games do. Like, they don't really... I'm so, I was about to say that. I'm glad that you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They don't really have, like... You have little bits of cutscenes and stuff, but most of the narrative is environmental or item descriptions or characters talking or lore like that. It's never really what we normally class as the central narrative of a game, in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But they yeah. all still make a difference to the player and how you interpret the space. Mm. Of course, yeah, those worlds seem very um, lived in, in a way, even mm -hmm. though they're fantastical. But at the same time, players don't have to engage with it. Like, I played, the first time I played through Bloodborne, I had no idea what was happening <laughs> at any point. <laughs> I was like, okay, I think a god just came down and tried to kill me, but whatever. Like, just... <laughs> like, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the voluntary aspect that you talk about is a really important part of that there, because like, a lot of games, they have massive massive text dumps that like you just have like in the middle of menus or whatever that can be just an absolute slog to get through but by the same token that the fact that they're there is so so important because if it wasn't like you would feel the difference even if you don't actively engage with the massive like strings of text that you might find hidden in the depths of the game if it wasn't there like you'd feel it would take you out of the game a little bit it would feel more like a game rather than a world mm. that you're like trying to explore uh, the souls games are a great example which it's, it's strange that i love those games and i love narrative in games but the narrative in those games is something that i don't usually pay attention to yeah. not actively it's something that's always going on in the back of my head like i might like be like oh 
that person, he was referenced on that like item I picked up earlier. Oh, that's kind of neat. But I'm not going to like study every single item there um, to kind of understand the story. Um, one question I meant to ask, actually, um, this is a small thing, <laughs> but uh, do you remember back back in the olden days, the olden times, when uh, you used to get an old Super Nintendo game or a Sega game and they'd have a little like backstory in the front of the manual? Did you ever see those? Yeah, I think they used to have those in like PlayStation 1 games too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's actually, they kind of work on a similar level, I think, because nobody nobody thought, okay, I have to read the manual before I play this game, otherwise I'm not going to understand what's going on. Some of the stuff that you'd read in those manuals are off the wall insane. Like, I don't know if any of you guys know about this, right? The original Super Mario Brothers, if you read the manual for that, right, one little detail they mention in that is when you go into the Mushroom Kingdom and uh, Bowser steals the princess, another thing he does, he transforms lots of residents of the Mushroom Kingdom into blocks in the Mushroom Kingdom. <laughs> Did you know that? No. Wait, oh, wow. are, are you telling me that all the blocks that you destroy used to be people? Are people, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh Isn't that insane? That's so, That's dark. so dark for a Mario game. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Nintendo wow. have a history of doing that. Like, another one is from uh, Star Fox. Like, if you remember the front, you might, some of you might have heard of this. They are all wearing, like, these grey boots. Have you seen that? Like Where is this going? The, the cover of the game is. It? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So this might seem like nothing, but if you read into the uh, manual, apparently the reason that they're wearing the boots is because they had their feet severed so the blood wouldn't rush what to the their feet. Why is this in the manual? In oh Imagine that the kids reading this. Yes. Like. Steve, that's, that's a lie. Kids can't read. That's a lie. I swear that's true. I thought he was going to say, if you open the manual of Super Mario Bros., it tells you the meaning of life or something <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. sorry that's just a little tangent but yeah that's I'd love it if they had stuff like that like yeah. wow that's awesome <laughs> um, so uh, Aoife you said that you were working on a VR game as well do you have any uh, ideas on like how narrative can work within a VR game like any unusual ideas like how narrative design is incorporated into a VR game yeah, I mean, with my role with that was, um, again, very brief. I was uh, basically a story consultant. Um, and so I was helping um, the team kind of shape the narrative for the, the future episodes that they hope to do. I wasn't involved in any of the technical aspects. But um, yeah, VR it was a really interesting opportunity because it's kind of a step further into interactivity. You, you get to be more tactile, you know, in, in, in the world because you're actually there using your own hands. Well, not really your hands, but, <laughs> you know, you're, you're actually experiencing the world in a, a much more immersive way than you are in third person um, or even in, in first person. I guess it's the same as first person, but you're kind of fully 360 involved in it. Um, so it goes back to... The whole environmental storytelling is, I think, a really big tool in explaining the narrative and allowing the player to explore the narrative in games like VR and letting them piece together things themselves based on how they choose to explore. Mm. Yeah, I think um, in a VR game, like there's a real... Uh, emphasis on uh, environmental storytelling that like if you fall back on traditional storytelling tropes like say you find a letter or a note or something it might almost take you out of the game a little bit because it's a little um, 
I don't want to say archaic, but like, you know, it's a little more reminiscent of like, you know, maybe triple a games from uh the ps3 era ps2 era this is how we did storytelling back then so if you do it here it kind of takes you out a little bit yeah i know um, what you mean I, I think in vr you know you're actually in the world as much as you can be and if you see something mm. in the distance you want to walk over and explore it you know you, you don't necessarily want to deal with too much text not that text doesn't have its place but i think like you said it's more interesting mm. for the player to to be more um active in that role yeah, 100%. I've always been thinking, is there any kind of game that we could theoretically do? I don't think it's possible now where you con- constantly are taking your helmet on and off. Like, uh, so perfect example, actually, just I don't think it's possible now would be on an Assassin's Creed game. When you're going into the Animus, you're actually putting the helmet on that mm. kind of way. But um, I just don't think the technology is caught up with us yet. I don't think it's something that we could do. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, who knows what games will look like in the future? Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's a cool idea, though, as in, like, part VR, part controller-based or, mm. like, regular sort of thing. It's just so much hassle, though. Like, I, I have, like, the headset, and it's just so much hassle, like, setting it up to put it on, take it off. It would never work because nobody would want to do that again and again. Yeah, that's oh, true. Oh, which headset do you have? <laughs> the, P- the, uh, the PlayStation the- VR. Okay. Oh, is it cumbersome? I really want one. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 grand. Like once you're playing a game and you're settled into playing it, it's fine. It's just that taking it off and on again is just like it's it takes about a minute, you know. Mm-hmm. So like doing that in the middle of gameplay is not ideal. Right. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Actually, Aoife, so like you're really big into narrative. Like, what is there any games that came out recently, or even games that you've played recently, where like the narrative really just grabbed you or really excited you? Yeah, I think this game, I was late to this game. Um, it's not a recent one, but I, I've recently played What Remains of Edith Finch. I don't know if anyone oh, here has played it. Cool. Um, yeah, and, and oh, I, cool. I live tweeted my playthrough because I was blown away. Like in the first scene, I was yelling. <laughs> I was like, what? what is this game? Because I mean, I, I knew it was going to be good because everyone was talking about it, but I, I didn't know what I was getting into. And, and then I was playing it and I was like, okay, what is this? This is so weird and mm. wonderful. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you want spoilers if someone here hasn't played it. Um, I, I, I actually I've played a tiny bit of it, but only at the very beginning. I, I could be mixing it up because a lot of similar narrative-driven games came out around the same time, but you're sort of unraveling a mystery throughout it, aren't you? You are. You're, you're trying to figure out, um, and this isn't really a spoiler because you learn this at the beginning. Um, you are you know, playing as Edith Finch and, and you are trying to find, you're finding out what happened to all the members of your family. There's like mm-hmm. kind of a, a curse on your family and they all die in mysterious ways. And um, you go back to this house to figure, and you go through each individual person's room to figure out what happened to them. And you play through a little scene for each person and they're all quite different. And um, I think uh, this isn't too spoilery because I'm not going to talk about the end, but mm. um, there's a scene where, you are playing as like a canning work, you know, you're in a canning factory, like a tuna canning, you know? Um, And you know, this, this person is incredibly bored by the monotony of their job. And the, the narrative design here is amazing because they completely tied that into the gameplay. So you have to repeat the same action over and over and over oh, of, cool. of cutting off the fish head. And the guy is, and so, you know, you kind of get, you get used to it and you're like, okay, this is kind of, you know, repetitive and then um he because he's bored he starts imagining this other world where he is the hero and that starts off in a small corner of the screen 
while you keep repeating this emotion. And then it gets bigger and bigger until it takes over the whole screen, but you still have to keep doing this motion because you know, you're still at work Mm. while you're imagining. (laughs) And that, it was amazing. Um, It was really so powerful because you were, I mean, that's the great thing I think about games as interactive stories, because you were experiencing exactly what this character is supposed to be experiencing, going through the monotony of their job while, you know, dreaming about another place. Mm. So yeah, Mm. it was was fantastic. That sounds amazing. Yeah. It's such a, Mm. that's exactly what a daydream is. You're doing something monotonous and it starts Mm -hmm. to creep into your, like literally what you're saying, the corner of your vision and then it encompasses and you're Mm. just sort of lost there. And then like you suddenly snap back to reality and... Yeah, I thought it was so clever. And I mean, yeah, I think, I think um, when I went, when I tweeted about it, then people were like, oh yeah, that scene, <laughs> like, that was the, that's the one that like, people remembered. Um, but yeah, it's a fantastic game. Like there are plenty of scenes in that that I could talk about forever, but I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Can we spoil it or not? But I'm 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 actually very intrigued now. I would like to play that as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I, I I actually I really want to play that as well. So sorry, <laughs> listeners. <laughs> sorry. You just have to go and play it yourself. Yeah, I know. I'm just going to say for the listeners who have played it, I'm just going to say the baby. All right, that's uh, it. Okay, there's a little tidbit for you guys. Yeah, that's that's not cryptic. <laughs> Read at all. into it what you will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say uh, the pelican. I don't know what that means. Anymore. I'm just going to say it. The economy. <laughs> so, so Aoife, uh, with with the huge popularity um, of multiplayer and games as a service style games lately, uh, where do you think the future lies for narrative based games? Um. So uh, yeah, that's a really interesting question because, like, narrative is not just the story you tell, right? Mm-hmm. Like, narrative is your world. It's the characters in the game and, and even like the systemic narrative experiences when, when you have different systems interact with each other as a player, you, you have these whole new narrative experiences that you might, you know, the, the developers probably didn't plan for. Like um, I'm thinking of Skyrim, like that's a huge open world game. Mm. Um, and, you know, my first playthrough, <laughs> my first playthrough, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, I killed the first, like, quest giver in the first village <laughs> I went to. And, um, <laughs> it's because I, I decided to kill a chicken because this chicken was annoying me. And I killed a chicken and then the whole town came out to kill me for that. Jeez. And I, I, <laughs> I ended up killing the quest giver I needed. So the whole town was dead. And then I was like, oh, I don't know what to do next <laughs> because I killed the quest giver. <laughs> but um, like, that's a narrative experience that was not intended yeah. <laughs> it was not not authored but it was still um it was still an experience a player driven experience that i had um and is you know i think players or will care a lot about the characters they meet in games or, or at least you hope they will mm. so even if the main story isn't driving them forward like their interest in certain characters is what will lead them to pursue a new quest line i mean i again just use skyrim as an example i became a vampire in skyrim because i liked you know the vampire girl serena and i followed her to her castle and then it was like oh yeah I'm, okay i'll be a vampire i mean <laughs> cool like why not <laughs> um so you you get that kind of player directed narrative that's not necessarily something that is hand-authored or, or linear. Um, and I think you can get it in, in, you can have that kind of narrative experience in lots of different ways because you can have a different approach in games that feature dialogue choice. 
like the Mass Effect games, you know, you have Paragon or Renegade with very different experiences and you might choose one or the other based on the characters you're interested in rather than on the story. Yeah. And like with games as a service in particular, it's the world itself that that's what keeps you coming back and you want to explore and you, and you want to meet people there. Um, but for multiplayer, I think it's also possible to have a meaningful narrative. Like, I don't know if any of you have played Journey. Yes. Um, oh, yeah. 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 So like that's a multiplayer game, but you, you still have this beautiful, emotional narrative experience. And I think, you know, you have room for handcrafted experiences and player driven experiences in multiplayer, depending on how you choose to play. Like I played through Journey by myself first, even though there are people trying to play with me. So I was like, no, <laughs> this is my journey. <laughs> and then I, I replayed it and I realized like how much it changes the narrative by having other people with you. Um, you know, I'm thinking of that, that wind level scene in particular, there was someone with me that time mm. and their scarf was longer than mine. And so they helped me get through it easier. I don't, I, this is going to sound so weird if you haven't played Journey. The scarf is important. You just remember the baby, guys. The baby. But yeah, like you can have, you can have game narratives that are player driven or you can have a range of experiences that are directed by the player with like choice, or you can have a completely handcrafted experience like the last of us. Yeah. And I, I think mm. there's, there's room for all of those storytelling experiences in games, um, which is part of what makes games so interesting. I think. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I, I guess like it, it kind of, it's kind of comes down almost to like multiplayer and um, versus like linear games or narrative or linear, like narrative driven games. Because there's there kind of seems to be like almost maybe it's easing off now, but a little bit of competition between those two where like I suppose big um publishers and stuff would rather push games as a service because they're gonna make more money out of it in the long run. But then we are seeing like, for example, this year, well, Cyberpunk being one of them mm. and also like Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, they were like linear, really rich story driven games. I would argue though that the line is almost blurring in ways because mm. Cyberpunk, while there isn't other players in it, does linear is not a word Actually, sorry, you'd it, use It wouldn't for, call that linear. No, I, yeah. I understand what you mean. But it's not multiplayer. It's not yeah. multiplayer. But I mm. think it's like the weird thing about Cyberpunk is it's almost trying to artificially um, convey that same atmosphere to a player because there's so many things going on around you that you don't, you haven't affected. There's like firefights in the street or a Caribbean chase. It's almost like a Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. Other stories happening around you that are just part of the world. Yeah, in other words. very true. And yeah. that like, again, tying back to the incidental dialogue, make things feel more lived in. Yeah. In a way. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, I, th I think if his point is great that like we have room for all these within the medium, like there's no, oh, yeah, definitely. there's no, um, you know, police for games saying, <laughs> no, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess it just comes down to uh, what the, the consumer wants really, you know, and, and I think like people have shown, especially in recent years that they want a variety. So mm. yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. Very true. Yeah. I don't know if any of you guys saw, but Sony re recently released um, a survey that they sent out to a lot of players yes. that said that the, a lot of gamers, even though multiplayer is very popular, the majority of players prefer single player offline games rather than the multiplayer ones. Hmm. Um, did any of you see that? I, I did, and I think it's... It possibly speaks a lot to Sony's audience as well, because a lot of their first party titles do tend to be mm. more um, single player driven to a certain extent. But um, 
I think it's great that there's room for more. I think uh, multiplayer games get a lot of visibility because they tend to get played a lot on Twitch and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, whereas there are single-player playthroughs on Twitch, of course, like Cyberpunk, we keep going back to. But, but you have to be aware of spoilers and stuff like that as well when you're doing Twitch. That's another Yeah, thing exactly. To take and it's, it's not quite the same. I guess Twitch thrives on like a competitive thing, seeing someone test mm. their skills against other people or being part of a group in like something like COD or PUBG or Fortnite, something like that, mm. um, where single-player games don't really offer that. But... That is fascinating to see, though, that uh, survey and the details of that. It, it just shows that, um, I guess, single-player, more conventionally narrative-driven games aren't going away. Mm. Yeah. Actually, on the topic of um, Fortnite, because you brought it up, they're doing some interesting things with uh, how we experience narrative. Because they have, um, I only recently came across this now, the idea of like events that happen within Fortnite's world. Um off the top of my head, I think they they showed a movie. I think um, the trailer. Didn't they show it? they showed the no, didn't they? Sh- Tenant Interstellar wasn't it? Was it Tenant? They showed a trailer for Tenant, but they movie. had Inception and Interstellar playing. <laughs> Isn't that such <laughs> a bizarre way to watch a movie? That's so weird. <laughs> wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it was a thing. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, they um, they do seem to be doing a lot of those kind of um, like out of game experience. I don't know how you would explain that, but it's like cross media <laughs> maybe yeah yeah but it's like yeah. nothing to do with the game but it's just in the game world kind Travis of. Scott had a concert within yeah, as well. yeah as well Sick, yeah. and actually um, funnily uh, Watch Dogs Legion uh, Stormzy had a music video in the game mm. oh um, yeah yeah, yeah that's cool which is pretty cool so yeah lots of things like that happen I wonder if we can find like an ancient Greek musician to <laughs> add some music to Odyssey at some point to release a music video <laughs> <laughs> Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Aoife, how has your studio adapted to working during the COVID pandemic? Um, yeah, I think the the adaption was extremely fast. Um, like, you know, we're, we've been work from home as needed since March. Um, mm. They're following all the local guidelines here in Malmo, like the, the, the Swedish guidelines. And... Um, They've been really supportive in making sure we're comfortable and we have everything we need to be productive. Mm. So it was it was pretty fast and pretty seamless transition. But I really I really miss meeting in person, to be yeah, honest. And yeah. I really miss working mm. in the studio. Like it's fun and there is a vibe and you can just walk over to someone's desk and be like, "What is this?" <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's a shame. But um, I'm looking forward to to going back whenever we can. Someday soon, hopefully. Yes, thank God. Yeah. Has there been any any talk now that like the vaccine and stuff is on the table? Or I haven't heard anything yet. So may- maybe in January we'll get more information. But yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see. I I completely get what you mean, though. I didn't realize how much I would miss the like social interaction part of my job until it was taken yes. away, mm-hmm. and especially for something that like your role is so collaborative as well. Like just being able to talk to people in person and convey ideas that way must be so much easier you know yeah it's just it's it's just nicer too isn't it like Mm. to have have the human interaction and um you know just just to see someone's face because sometimes people won't have their cameras on or whatever or you're in a big you're in a big meeting so you can't even see everybody um and you know you miss seeing people's face (laughs) and (laughs) and see reading the inter reading the uh the 
expression on their face <laughs> rather than just mm. hearing it. But um, I mean, it, it has been pretty smooth, though, I will say, like people adapted pretty quickly to to working this way. Um, and like I said before, it's given me some some more time at home with my pet. But um, <laughs> what was the name? Fluffy or <laughs> Mr. Floof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, it's Mr. Floof. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's yeah. Mr. Floof. <laughs> Dr. Floof, please. <laughs> <laughs> that, that joke goes around a lot, actually. People keep calling him doctor. Like, he hasn't got his PhD yet. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's but yeah, it's been it's been um, as good as it possibly can be, you know, I think in the circumstances. Yeah, this year has just been, let's just say this year didn't happen. Okay, it, it went from 2019 <laughs> yeah. straight to 2021. There yeah. was no 2020. Yeah, there won't be any COVID next year, like. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <right>. Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Jinxed it now. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, Aoife, as we come to a close, uh, I'd like to ask, what's your personal game of the year? Oh, okay. So, yeah, I, I think it's The Last of Us Part Two. Um, oh, cool, yeah. But I, I'm I'm really biased here because I loved the first mm. one, um, and I was so excited to play the second. Like I I, I played it straight through when it came out, um, partly because I knew I'd be spoiled if if I didn't, yeah. but um, mainly because it, it was so compelling. Like I was really interested to see how they're going to wrap up the ambiguity of the first ending because I mean the first game is so powerful, but how it ended really like it, that that was so impactful, and part two really delivered on that. Um, I can't believe it was this year. Yeah. 2020 is weird. But um, yeah, the, the, the accessibility options alone were fantastic. Like they innovated on that so much. But uh, yeah, the, the narrative, the gameplay, the world, seeing my little Ellie grow oh, up, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was fantastic for me. <laughs> and and it, they did take some chances with their narrative approach in the game as well, which is nice to see from... Um, because it was such an anticipated game, they could have played it a lot safer in some ways. But mm-hmm. having that, I don't want to spoil anything, but like having multiple perspectives, let's say, in the narrative was uh, a really brave creative decision, I think. Yeah, I really, I really respected that too, to be able to see both sides of this story and the way that it was... Um, the way that it was shown. I'm not going to give any spoilers here because yeah. I know not, not everyone will play that yet. But um, yeah, it was, it was super interesting and they really... I mean, it seemed to me that they really stuck to their guns in like telling the story they wanted to tell. And um, yeah, I loved it. I, I know I know, it's kind of a polarizing game, but I loved it. Well, sometimes <laughs> the best art is in a way. Mm, yeah, yeah. true. <laughs> um, would you say they'll do like a PlayStation 5 version of that? I'm kind of hope, holding out for that before. I haven't bought The Last of Us Part 2. I'm hoping that there'll be a P- PlayStation 5 version. I wouldn't be surprised because mm. they had a remastered for PS4. Mm, of course, so. yeah, yeah. That, that's what I'm thinking. In terms of uh, next gen, like, what would you say you're looking forward to the most, or even just like in the future? Um, I guess you know, I'm not. I'm, not, I'm actually not going to run out and buy a PlayStation Five straight away because I'm quite happy with with my PlayStation Four. I will get I'm not a PlayStation sure you can 5. anyway. To be honest, well, you can't <laughs> anyway, right? I mean, they're impossible to get. Um, but yeah, like I, I'm quite happy with mine. But I guess I'm looking forward to all all the good stuff that comes with an upgrade, right? You know, faster loading mm. times and better visuals. Um, but I'm personally really looking forward to Hitman VR because I love oh, the yeah. Hitman games Ooh, nice. and the VR looks incredible i mean it looks too good to be true so i'm gonna have to go out and buy a vr headset just for that game (laughs) but uh yeah that's what i'm most excited about personally 
Awesome. That's nice. nice. Yeah, those um it seems like such a, a series that's would excel with VR because if you see any like the last few Hitman games, the world the environments are so detailed with everything. And I imagine yes. when you're in a first person or, or viewpoint, just being able to go around and pick up all the glasses on the bar or the mm. tables or anything like that. Just it, it, they're already very immersive games, even though they're a little silly as well in some ways. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's like it's a great candidate for VR, I think. Mm. Yeah, it will, it will like really change the game as well, since like they're always they've always been third person too. Mm. Now throwing it into that first person perspective would be really cool. What did you think of yeah. the recent sort of reboot of the Hitman franchise, Eva? Um, I'm really enjoying it, but like I, I still. I still hold the classics very dear to mm. my heart, you know. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think they've expanded the universe so much and they have these like huge non-linear levels now. I mean, you really, it's really a proper sandbox now, yeah. you know. Like they, they used to have that with the old games to an extent, but there were still usually maybe only one or two paths that you could take safely, or at least that I could. Maybe I was just really crap at them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, you know, like you, you kind of, you figure out a way that works when you're playing one of the old games and you stick to it because otherwise you are going to get shot instantly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas um, the, the reboot's been made way more realistic when you have, you know, you'll have guards that will escort you from an area, you know, before they open fire or, you know, you, you just have more chances, I guess, to explore and see what works and, and figure out different ways to get to your target and all the challenges you can complete. So, yeah, I, I mean, I love stealth games personally, and this is just, yeah, it's definitely one of my favorite series. Mm. There's just so much you can do with it. Sick, yeah. I'm, I'm very excited to see what they do with the James Bond franchise as well. They recently announced oh, yeah. James yeah. Bond. And it seems like such a perfect fit as well for the type mm. of games they make. Yeah, I'm really not surprised because I remember now when they when they were showing off Hitman 2016, they described it as a spy thriller. Mm. And I was like, ah, okay, makes sense. Yeah. They've sort of <laughs> always wanted to make a James Bond game in a way, but yeah, this is their chance. Yeah, this maybe. Yeah. Um, so at the end of every podcast we do, we just ramble about whatever game we're playing at the moment. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just whatever game we're playing at the moment. Um, so what are you playing at the moment, Eva? Okay, so this is going to sound so fake, but I'm actually playing The Division 2 right now. <laughs> oh, cool. How convenient. <laughs> I know, I know. Who makes that? But, oh, it's massive. <laughs> I know, I was like, maybe maybe I should pretend I'm playing something else just so it doesn't sound like it. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying it because I'm not, I don't usually play shooters, but um, I, I started playing it and I, I finished the main campaign and I finished Warlords of New York. And um, I'm on the seasons now and it's just, it's been so much fun and the, the gameplay is really fun for me and the locations are beautiful and it's, it's kind of really weird for me to play it and be like, oh, I have such talented colleagues. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it, that's what I'm doing right wow. now, running around DC. <laughs> you, you've blasted through it so, because I, I actually, I played like a load of that as well a few months ago and I think I'm on, mm-hmm. I haven't even done the, the Warlords in New York DLC yet, but I'm on... Oh, it's really do, good. <laughs> do you know, like, once you, maybe this is a spoiler, but I'll just say, you know, when the map goes red. Mm-hmm. So, like, the last base, um, that's where I'm at at the moment. I, have to, I just have to do the last base on the red map. Oh, cool. Cool. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Steve, what are you playing at the moment? Um, so I'm jumping between two games at the moment. Uh, by day, I'm playing Stardew Valley. Oh, cool. Uh, which is like, you know, nice and peaceful. And then by night, I'm playing the original Dead Rising. Oh, oh wow. Cool. Mm. Where did that come yeah, from? Have you guys played <laughs> Dead Rising? No, I mean, like, yeah, why did, you, why did you pick that one up? 
Uh, it was on sale. It was oh, like yeah. five five euros. So I thought, the hell with it. I've been meaning to play that for a long time. So I think I'll just jump in. It's a weird ass game. Really, really bizarre. One of the first things I did was pick up a giant teddy bear hat helmet thing. And then I found a lawnmower, ran over a load of zombies, and then I died. <laughs> and I haven't played it since then. <laughs> it's a weird, I don't know if you guys know, a weird uh, mechanic with that is if you die, um, you can restart your entire game. Like, to, like, you have to finish the game in 72 hours to kind of get out of the shopping mall. Mm. And if you die, you can restart with all of your stats. So you're starting from the very start as powerful as you were at that point. Mm. Oh, that's cool. Oh, nice. Weird little mechanic. Kind of like New there Game Plus. Yeah. yeah, it is like New Game Plus, I guess, but it's ti- is it tied into the narrative? Do you re-generate no. or is it just happens? No, it just happens. Like So like you meet all the characters for the first time again, but you're just stronger. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. What are you playing, Sean? Uh, I just finished uh, Metro Exodus, actually. Um, which, cool. uh, yeah, the, the third game in the trilogy, which I was waiting to play for so long. Um, really enjoyed it. That there's like kind of it kind of blends like linear and open world in a bit, um, compared to the last two games because they were like fully linear. This one, it's still like for all intents and purposes a linear game, but there's like a few levels in it that are more open world where like you have a hub and you can go like search different locations and things like that um mm. so that was cool yeah really enjoyed it and um i'm actually just playing the dlc on that at the moment now so how how does that game compare to the previous two because i i've only played i played 2033 and last light and i love those games but so much of it seems to depend on it being like really tight and claustrophobic so like how does it compare oh um man i definitely recommend playing exodus so if you get the chance um it's really really well done like even i mean I would compare it uh, really to the Stalker franchise, um, which I've mentioned oh, here nice. before. But um, it's it really has like in the open world areas, it really has that atmosphere from the Stalker games, and like it does its best to like keep you scared the whole time, basically, even when you're <laughs> in an open world environment. Um, and yeah, so it it does it really well. I think it like it ties in with the last two games really well too, even though you're mm. like, uh, it's no secret, you're out of the Metro in this game. But um, mm. yeah, it, it does a really good job. I definitely recommend it. Cool, so cool. cool. So um, Michael, what are you playing at the moment? Thanks for asking, Steve. Um, <laughs> pl- at the moment, I'm playing uh, Cyberpunk 2077. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it, it's like, yes and no. That's the, the main thing I have to say. I'm playing on a PS4, an old PS4, I should say, like six years old or something. So it's there's plenty of jank going on there, um, plenty of crashes and bugs and stuff like that and textures popping in at weird times. But I'm really getting into it now. I'm really enjoying it. And partly because like it's this huge city and it's so immersive and it's so incredibly detailed and there's so many like little elements that they've added to it. But also like one of my favorite games is the original Deus Ex and it sort of scratches mm. that itch to a certain extent as well. Um, not just because of the setting, um, like the future tech and all like that, but also 
just how immersive and going around like stealing things from people's apartments like I'm going to take this cup and just keep it in my inventory you know that sort of thing like I love the freedom of it and like the different approaches like oh do you want to do hacking do you want to do stealth do you want to do action like it's really it's it's intimidatingly big at the moment um, <laughs> because I'm I'm early game and there's just so many things you can do but um, yes and no and it's got Hideo Kojima in it, so that's yeah. that's pretty <laughs> flipping cool, you know. Yeah, I heard it was reminding people a lot of um, Deus Ex. That sounds really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely got some of that DNA in it, like a, a mixture of that and Grand Theft Auto would be the the easiest way to sum it up. Um, yeah, it's a pity the new Deus Ex games weren't better. <laughs> um, to be honest, I do <laughs> like them, but this is this is like yeah, scratching that itch, like I said. Mm. Mm. Um, well, Aoife, thank you so much for joining us and for giving us that insight into mm, your role fantastic. at Ubisoft Massive mm. and in the industry in general. Um, we Thanks, it's been yeah, fun. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can't wait to see and play what you're going to work on next. Yeah, same here. Yeah, well, maybe whenever <laughs> that comes out or gets announced, we can get you back on and we can burn your ear about that project. I should be too big then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> too big to be no, talking to be... low lives like us. <laughs> <laughs> no, that'd be really cool. Yeah, yeah. Great. Thanks, Aoife. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks.